Uh, first thing I need to do this morning before we look at our passage uh, regarding the Lord's Prayer is just address a concern raised with me last week um, regarding the illustration I shared, the little story at the end of last week's message. Uh, someone came and shared a concern and I thought it merited, uh, I guess, some explanation for us all because maybe others share the concern. Just a, a recap, the story I shared was originally told by Pastor Herschel York um, regarding a man he knew in Brazil, John Hatcher, uh, who had planted 70 churches uh, in his time of ministry and mission in Brazil. Nearing the end of his life, um, John Hatcher that is, uh, Herschel York went to visit him and commend him on his ministry and just give thanks to God for all that he had done. Um, And he suggested that such was his life and ministry and his mission work that uh, that story needed to be told, Uh, his biography needed to be written. And it was with tears in his eyes and some terror in his face that John Hatcher said to Herschel, please don't. To which Herschel said, why not? It's been such a great and fruitful ministry, others should hear about this. And Hatcher's response was, please don't. Don't rob me of my reward. Jesus said you can do it for the praise of men or for the praise of God. I want the unfading crown of glory. Don't rob me of that. Now the concern raised, which as I said, I do think merited some uh, explanation or um, comment, was that, hang on, does that mean every biography ever written about someone's ministry has robbed them of their reward? You could come to that conclusion through that story, couldn't you? Have we robbed Tim Keller of his crown of righteousness with all the accolades and tributes and biographies that have been written of him in the recent weeks. I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm grateful the concern was raised with me. And whilst I think the story could be heard that way, neither Jesus nor I last week were sharing it in that way. It wasn't that somebody else could rob us of our reward through their actions. It was if our motivation, if our heart's intent was to seek the praise of men, then that's all we receive. And we would, our Father in heaven would not reward us. That's what Jesus taught. My intention in sharing the story was, I guess, to show the zeal of that man for the, his treasure in heaven. We're going to hear about that in coming weeks. Where's your treasure laid up? Here on earth or there in heaven? Um, and because of that, because of how much he treasured and how precious all that the Lord had prepared for him in glory was, he didn't want any praise from man at all. Maybe he was particularly aware of his own tendency towards pride. Maybe he'd wrestled with that himself in his own life. I don't know. But he definitely didn't want any praise from man. Not saying any biography or testimony written is that, but for that man, he didn't want to go near that. Um, Even the New Testament shares many testimonies of God's work through men and women, doesn't it? The book of Acts is full of it work of Christ, the work of the Spirit through the apostles. And yet I don't think Peter or Paul or Barnabas have lost their reward because Luke chose to write that ministry in the book of Acts. Um, But again, I just wanted to highlight how much John Hatcher treasured what God had prepared for him and how little, therefore, he considered any praise from man. In in fact, he saw it as a threat. Um, If we ourselves... Together with that concern was the question, well, how do we deal with this personally if others praise us or give thanks to us for our work and our ministry? 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We should be commending. I actually shared last week too that we should be affirming and encouraging one another. But if we receive that praise and encouragement, then I think it's good and right to actually deflect that, in one sense, to the Father. Any ministry of ours is actually his ministry first and foremost. If it's not, then we labour in vain. And anything we do may well get burnt up on the last day. We're warned about that in the New Testament as well. So as Jesus said last week, those who seek to be seen and seek the praise of men, that might be all they get because they won't receive their reward from the Father. So don't seek that. Instead, practice your righteousness, Jesus said last week, in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. That's the promise that we heard last week. I hope that's helpful. I hope that uh, clarifies and relieves any concern. As we're about to hear in the Lord's Prayer this morning, as Jesus teaches us this prayer, our priorities as Christian believers, as God's kingdom children, are different to those with the rest of the world. Our priorities are different to those who live outside of that kingdom or who refuse to acknowledge God's reign and rule. It's one of the messages and truths I've come to learn more and more these weeks as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Hence the title for this morning's sermon, Priorities in Prayer. As God's kingdom children, we seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, his acceptance in Christ, his glory, not our own. And so as we start the sermon proper... Turn with me to Matthew 6. And whilst there's much we could share about in this uh, passage this morning and in this prayer, and there's been much written about it, there's actually two main points I want us to note this morning. Just two. The second one's got a couple of points to go with it. But the first is that we need to realise and we need to note that we need to be taught, we need to learn how to pray. Secondly, perhaps the first thing that we are to learn in that teaching is that who we are praying to determines what we pray. The nature and character of the one to whom we pray affects our prayers. So first of all, and briefest of all, we need to be taught how to pray. Now, I'm not saying that to say that unless we are taught, unless we know this prayer off by heart or anything like that, that our prayers are less effective or we don't know how to pray. But the fact that Jesus' disciples in Luke's Gospel, the context for the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, is that they said, would you teach us to pray? And here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is teaching his followers to pray like this or to pray in this way. And so when it comes to prayer, we've all got something to learn, haven't we? And Jesus is only too willing to teach us. There is probably not one person here, I hope there's not one person here, who could say they've got nothing left to learn when it comes to prayer and drawing near to God. How many of us, myself included, could say we're happy with our prayer life, that we don't struggle with prayer, that we don't put enough time or energy aside for it, that we don't know what to pray sometimes? that we can get lazy and put it off and not see it as important. What Jesus teaches us here, though, 
is far more than just learning a particular kind of prayer, whether by rote or as a model, which is more what the intent is here, I think. In teaching us what we've come to learn as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus actually takes us into the very heart of the Father. He takes us into the very heart of the relationship he himself has with the Father. But he doesn't tell us to pray to his Father, you see? He tells us to pray to our Father. Which straight away means all that our, all our prayers don't need to be behind a, a closed door in our own room, does it? Because we're to pray our Father, it's collective, it's congregational. Can't do that if we're in our room on our own, we would say my Father. So this is a corporate prayer that we're to pray. But Jesus takes us into the very heart of God the Father to whom we pray. We saw some of that last week, actually, in the context, and we had it read for us again. We have already received blessings from God. We don't need to pray like the hypocrites who pray on the street corner and in the synagogue, wanting everyone to look at them and see how pious and wonderful and godly they are. We don't need the approval of man because we've been blessed with the approval of God in Christ. And we pray to one who is generous and faithful. He's already lavished his blessings on us and calls us his own children. We already have a relationship with God. And so we don't need to seek the praise of men. Nor do we need to pray like the Gentiles, Jesus says, who fill their prayers up with empty, repeated phrases, thinking God will hear them better or answer them more readily because of their big, long, lengthy theological words. Empty phrases. Fluff. Babble. No, our Father in heaven who sees in secret, he knows what we need. Can you see how Jesus is actually revealing something of the Father to us? as he teaches us how to pray. He knows what we need. Therefore, Jesus says, pray then like this. We need to be taught how to pray because of sin, because of our laziness, because of our mixed agendas, because of the voices of the world, and may well be because of our poor understanding of God himself. We need to be taught how to pray. And already we're moving into that second point, aren't we? Because the first thing Jesus teaches with regards to prayer is who it is we are praying to. Who we are praying to determines what we pray. I don't know if you've noticed, if you think back over the years and perhaps decades of your own walk with God, have your prayers changed? I'd suggest they have. And they've probably changed as you've come to know God more, as you've come to read his word and as Christ and the Spirit have revealed the Father to you, your prayers have changed because the one to whom you pray, you've come to know him more and more, nearer and dearer. We're learning how to pray all the time, aren't we? As we grow in our knowledge of God. And as I said, something I think is coming through the Sermon on the Mount time and time again is that for us as God's kingdom children, with him as our heavenly father, our priorities therefore are different to those of the world. Jesus teaches us how to pray, 
And the first lesson he gives his followers in this model prayer is who we are praying to. We're praying to our Father in heaven. And that really paves the way for the rest of the lesson, for the rest of the prayer, because who it is we're praying to determines what and how we pray. John Stott remarks, The essential difference between Pharisaic prayer or pagan prayer and Christian praying lies in the kind of God we pray to. If God was a great mighty tyrant, almighty and sovereign over all things as he is, but not our Father, we'd be praying very differently, wouldn't we? We'd be addressing him and approaching him with a whole different manner than what we do when we know that he is our Father and we come to him through Christ by the Spirit. And so the first thing Jesus teaches us with regards to prayer is who we're praying to. Our Father. Our Father in heaven. We pray to God who is personal, dearly so, this familial relationship, father and sons, father and daughters, his children. He delights. Don't, don't stop them coming. Let them come to me. And he is our Father in heaven. He is powerful. He is above all. As our Father, he knows everything. He knows us completely. He knows all our needs even before we ask. And he loves to give good gifts to his children. And as our Father in heaven, he doesn't just love to give good gifts and wish he could. He's powerful and able enough to give those good gifts to us. And he knows what's best. Like the father of the prodigal son, son, God, our heavenly father, he's alert to our prayers, to our hopes, to our needs. And his arms are wide open. He comes running to us to embrace us as we draw near to him in prayer. It's no small thing, is it, to be able to call God creator of the heavens and the earth, the judge of all the earth, to be able to call him our father. It's not that we've made him our father. He's made us his children. And he's revealed himself to us as our father. He's chosen us. He's loved us. He's sanctified us. He's adopted us in Christ to be his so that we might call him father. And many of us will know that not everyone is comfortable calling God Father. For some of us, our experience with our earthly fathers has actually made that quite difficult. But we shouldn't project our earthly images and experiences of fatherhood onto God. Because he's not like our fathers. There is something of the image of God and his fatherhood that all fatherhood should reflect and represent. But it doesn't go the other way. And even what we do reflect and represent is actually distorted and dim, sometimes to a great degree, even destroyed by sin. That's not God's fatherhood at all. If we want to see what God is like in his fatherhood, Jesus says, well, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We've seen his glory full of grace and truth. And if you do struggle knowing God as Father or calling him as Father, consider this. Not everyone in the world can 
call God Father. Can they? Some don't know him at all, refuse to believe there's any such thing as God. Some may recognise there is some greater supreme being and call him God for want of a better title. But only God's children have the privilege of calling him Father. Only those whom he has loved and called and chosen and adopted into his family have the privilege, the full rights of children of God to call him Father. That's a wonderful privilege. Not just to call him Father, but to know him as Father and to have him as our Father. There will be a day when everyone will know surely that there is a God. When every person will stand before the judge of all the earth. But only God's children will know the judge of all the earth as Father on that day. It's a truly wonderful and privileged position we're in. But together with that, we pray not only, not only to our Father, but to our Father in heaven. And I don't think in heaven there reflects so much his home address or his postal address. It's more to his position of power and authority. That's what that phrase means. If it were simply referring to God's location, it would mean that God is always distant, that our prayers have a long way to travel before they get to the Father. That's not the case, is it? No, he's promised to be with us. He's promised to draw near when we draw near to him and when we gather in the name of the Son, he's there with us. He's not distant in heaven, he's near to us. But as our Father in heaven, he is far above all other. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And so our Father in heaven, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Psalm 115, we had mentioned on Wednesday night. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's what in heaven means. No earthly king sits on his throne every minute of every day. But when he does... It's representing his place of authority. It's where he makes decisions. It's where he puts forward laws and decrees and hands down sentences. And so when we pray our Father in heaven, we are acknowledging that we are praying to our Father who sits on a throne, sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth. And here we are offering our prayers to that one and calling him our Father. And the one who's sovereign over all things knows what you and I need. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows the desires and the joys of our heart and the things we wrestle with, the things we're tempted by. And so, Jesus says, pray to him like this. A little while ago, the elders um, were invited to go and pray with Wayne and Karen just to share with them in faith and to pray for them, and particularly for Karen with the cancer concerns and treatment and all that's going on there. It's actually a wonderful thing to be invited into a home and into a couple's life and faith and prayer and struggle. But one of the wonderful things about that night is that together with Wayne and Karen and all the elders, we could pray with confidence. Because we knew, as we're reading here, that the Father knows what we need before we ask. And he's made promises to us, hasn't he? And so in those promises and in his knowing of all that we need, we could go and pray 
in great love and faith with great confidence. Confidence in God's eternal promises of glory that one day there'll be no more tears and no more pain, but also confidence in his present promises that he's promised to be with us, that there's a peace that surpasses all understanding and a comfort and a mercy that comes to us as we draw near to the Father. And we could pray for healing because he's asked us to tell him, to ask him anything that's on our hearts. Cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And we could even pray for that with confidence, knowing that he hears our prayers and that his will will be done and that his will is best. It's a wonderful thing to know who it is we're praying to, isn't it? Our Father in heaven. And so having taught us who we are praying to, Jesus then teaches us how to pray, what to pray for. As I said earlier, as God's kingdom children, our priorities are different. And maybe as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and maybe in the next couple of weeks particularly, that might confront us a little bit (laughs) because maybe our priorities are not that different to that of the world. Jesus says, where's your treasure? Where are you laying that up? What are you seeking? Your righteousness, Christ's righteousness, your kingdom, your little empire, or God's? The priorities of God's kingdom children are different to those of the world. We give God and his concerns, his name, his kingdom, and his will first place in our faith, in our life, and in our prayers. And in fact, that's actually what our salvation is, first and foremost, not primarily about us it's God's sovereign love and grace he's actually caught us up into his divine eternal plan that we would know his name that we would know that he's holy that his will would be done in his king how does his kingdom come here on earth well through sinners who come to faith and so any concerns for our little empires are put aside even those empires are put aside when we're taken captive by the love of this new king, this new lord of our life. Not that our interests aren't important, not that God doesn't want to be bothered with them, he does, but they don't come first. We do still commit all our cares to him because, as I said, Peter reminds us, he cares for you. And so in this model Christian prayer, we could go through the six petitions and we will very briefly But the first half of this prayer is all to do with God. His name, his kingdom come, his will be done. And I think it's best to read all those three things on earth as it is in heaven. In my mind, I think I've often just connected the last one, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I actually think it encapsulates all three of them. Calvin noted how um, the order here in in the uh, Lord's Prayer reflects something of the Ten Commandments. The first tablet, the first four commandments are all to do with God and our relationship with him. And the next part is all about our relationship with one another and our earthly lives. It's the same here with the Lord's Prayer. There's so many connections and parallels with God's covenant with us and his promises. After all, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about God's kingdom, isn't it? So why would it be any different to what he's already revealed about his kingdom, reign and rule and his covenant promises? 
we could actually say that this prayer that Jesus teaches is something of reveals something of God's kingdom charter, his plan and purpose for humanity. It's everything that God is about. And he wants us to get on board. And so Jesus takes us straight to the heart of the matter, to the name of the Father. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name, or perhaps better, holy be your name. To be holy is to be set apart, to be unique, separated from anything common and having a divine purpose. Elsewhere, you would have heard we hear God being holy, holy, holy. He is thrice holy. He is unique and set apart above everything else. There is none like him. Hallowed be your name. God's name is not just the title we use of him, God, Father, Yahweh. No, God's name is his character, his essence. Everything about God is contained in his name. Hallowed be your name. To pray that is to pray, you, Lord our God, you, our Father, are holy. May you be holy. May you be reverenced, revered and treated, regarded as holy on earth as you are in heaven. But it's not as though our prayers can actually make God holy, can they? Or make him more holy. But the prayer here is really asking God to do what's needed for his name to be treated as holy, for him to be seen as holy, which is actually one of the Lord's greatest concerns of his own. He's got great concern for his holy name. We may not be able to make God holy, but we can certainly defile or profane his holy name. We read that a number of times in the Old Testament. We're warned about it in the New. Remember Moses? One time in the wilderness, people were complaining, hungry, they're thirsty. Moses is getting pretty fed up with them, pretty frustrated. His patience is running out. God says, Moses, it's okay. I'll feed them. I'll give them drink. Take your staff and tell the rock here to give its water. Just tell the rock and water will flow. What does Moses do? Gets all the people in front of him, yells and screams at them, calls them a bunch of rebels. Here now, you bunch of rebels, shall we bring water out of this rock for you? Just the anger of his own heart coming through. And he takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. When God just told him to tell the rock. Ever done that? Ever done a Moses? And borne witness to your own heart rather than the heart of God? Before God's people? Now in God's mercy the water flowed from the rock. People got their water, thanks be to God. But Moses was rebuked by the Lord. Listen to what he says. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Not because you were angry, I'm going to give you a slap on the wrist. Your anger before the people, you you reflected something of me in a way that was defiled. You did not represent my holy name to the people. I am slow to anger. I am merciful and gracious. And you showed me to be impatient and quick to anger and full of wrath. 
you defiled my holy name. And judgment followed. In Ezekiel 36, another occasion, we read of the Lord's concern for his holy name where the people of Israel, they had profaned his holy name, not just the leader, but the whole nation. And so God had poured his wrath out upon them for the blood they had shed and the idols they worshipped. Again, profaning God's name actually meant judgment had to take place. And the Lord says this, I had concern for my holy name. I didn't want the other nations to think that I could not follow through with my promises. They're looking at my people now who've been taken out of their land because I had to judge them. But I want them to know that I'm a God who fulfills his promises, that is faithful to his covenant. And so do you know what I'm going to do? Not for your sake, O Israel, but for the sake of my holy name, I'm about to act. And what does he promise he's going to do? He's going to take his people. He's going to gather them from their scattered ways. He's going to bring them together. He's going to cleanse them of their sin. He's going to cleanse all the idols out of their midst. And he's going to put in them a new heart and a new spirit. Such that they will delight to do his will. That's what God does when he has concern for his holy name. That's what we are praying when we pray, hallowed be your name. Lord, would you judge sin as it needs to be judged according to your holiness? And would you fulfil your covenant promises? Because we need a new heart and a new spirit. Because we don't revere you as holy. Because I want my little kingdom built up, not yours. What would it be for us personally for God to hallow his name in our hearts? It would be just that, to judge the sin in our life, which he has in his son. And it would be to give us a new heart and cleanse us from all our sin and all our idolatry. That we would know him as father. When we ask the Lord to hallow his name, we're asking him in his new covenant mercy and grace to save sinners and pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Nothing less than that. Which is really what the next two petitions ask for as well, aren't they? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is near. People are being healed and people are hearing the gospel and coming to faith. There is a now and a not yet aspect of God's kingdom, isn't there? We still wait for its full and final consummation. Your will be done, Lord. How often do we pray, Lord, I need to know your will? And we're talking about a job or a partner. Boyfriend, girlfriend, house, decision to make. And yes, that's good and right. But God's will is no secret. He's revealed his will to us. Like your sanctification, 
1 Thessalonians, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Give thanks, pray continually. What is it? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But then there's his greater will, his kingdom will, which really started from creation onwards, and Matthew's gospel even begins, doesn't it? Here's God's will being woven through his covenant promises to Abraham and through David and fulfilled in Christ. It's all connected with his covenant. His great plan, his kingdom coming here on earth, that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God and the glory of God, that he would dwell with us and us with him, that all things would be united in Christ, That's what God's kingdom coming here on earth is. 1 day that happened to a man called Zacchaeus, didn't it? Salvation came to his house. A sinner met by Jesus, called by name. And he repented of his sins and he rejoiced in giving back fourfold anything he'd taken unlawfully for himself. That's God's kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens when God's name is upheld as holy and his will is done in the life of just one person. Lives are changed one by one. Imagine what takes place when a whole church and a whole town, a whole nation receives the kingdom like that. And even in Zacchaeus' little circle, life here on earth begins to look just a little like life in heaven because priorities have changed because hearts have been changed because of the holy love of the Father and his covenant promises are fulfilled and when all that takes place it's then again with confidence and joy And even with a cry of our hearts, we can ask the Lord for what we need. Because he's actually met all our greatest needs, hasn't he? And so in keeping with his name being hallowed and his kingdom coming and his will being done here on earth, as God's kingdom children, we can seek the Lord's provision. We can seek his pardon and his protection here on earth while we wait for the consummation of his kingdom. And Jesus teaches us to pray for our three greatest needs, really, in this life. Material need for our daily bread. Plenty being talked about that. Is it spiritual bread? Is it the communion table? I just think it's the bread we eat, like what we need for life. Another culture, it might be rice, it might be corn in another place. Yes, man cannot live on bread alone, but we do need bread to get by, don't we, to live another day. And it comes from God. I think in our affluent, contemporary, industrial culture, we've forgotten where our daily bread comes from. It just comes out of the pantry, doesn't it? Or off the supermarket shelf. And because it's so readily available, we actually forget that God provides our staple needs. And therefore we add to this request all the luxury things that we want. Because we're not in survival mode. Are we? And yet, as Naveen has already pointed out, what's our actual greatest need? Forgiveness of our sins. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And we can't ignore the fact of verses 14 and 15 here where Jesus actually seems to put some pretty strong qualifications and conditions on this forgiveness. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. I don't think what's happening here is that we, Jesus is not saying we earn the Father's forgiveness by forgiving others. I think we look in the broader context, for example, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, man who was forgiven so much he could never repay, he didn't actually realise how much his debt was, and yet he could not forgive one of his fellow servants just a little bit. And so his debt was actually reinstated. He was put in prison until he could pay it off. Not merely because he wouldn't forgive his servant, fellow servant, but because in not forgiving his fellow servant, what he actually did was give evidence. He proved that he'd never fully received the mercy of his master in the first place. His was not a repentant heart at all. He who has loved much forgives much. If you're forgiven little, you won't love much. And friends, there is not one of us here who has been forgiven little, is there? There is not one of us here who has only been loved a little or needed a little bit of mercy. How great a debt we owe. And so there is no room, there is no place for us to forgive little, to show little mercy or to love little because of the abundant, lavish, superabounding grace and mercy and forgiveness that we've received in Christ. Which leads us well into the final petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of our greatest temptations, I think, is thinking little of our own sin. That it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I do this, it doesn't matter if I do that, as long as no one sees or it doesn't hurt anybody. No. Again, much has been written. We're not going to go into it in detail. Some have changed the words to lead us not into times of trial or times of testing. I don't think the change is necessary. God doesn't tempt anybody. We're told that in James, aren't we? And yet he doesn't remove all temptation either. In fact, in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was part of God's very good creation. But we're also told the Lord always provides a way of escape that we may be able to endure temptation. He never gives us more than we're able to handle. On our own, any of it's more than we could handle. But look to him, look for his way of escape, look to his word and his faithfulness and his provision and his protection. And we'll, able to, we'll be able to endure it and resist it. Which is why we pray, Lord, you lead us not into temptation. Carson talks about this special little word called the latote, latote or something like that where it's actually a positive um, in contrast to the negative, not just lead us not into temptation, but Father, lead us far away from it and lead us into something better, as in Psalm 23, the shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness. So don't just lead us not down that path, lead us down this path and deliver us from evil. I feel like we could do a whole series, maybe even a whole year, just opening up each word and phrase of this prayer. But as I said at the beginning, I think what Jesus does here is take us into the very heart of the Father. 
And I pray, not just for this morning, but as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount and continue to, as Paul prays, that the hearts of our eyes, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we'd grow in our knowledge of God, such that it would change our prayers, what we pray for, how we pray, when we pray. that we would know we have a Father in heaven who knows what we need and has promised to give us and is able to give us good gifts, his own Son, and how much more will he not graciously give us all things. And so we're going to pray. I'm going to ask uh, Phil if he can put it on the screen a bit early. Sorry, Phil, I didn't give you a warning. Let's pray this prayer. You might know it by rote, and that's good, that's fine, but let's pray it a little bit more slowly and deliberately, given what we've been hearing. Let's pray with confident and deliberate faith in our Father. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.